Facebook Live, everyone. How's everyone doing? Yeah, good. Welcome here. Everyone alive? Yes, I assume so. All right. So, uh, we are, are in Matthew 17 this morning, and I was trying to, you know, it, it's always one of those things, if you're not directly speaking on an Advent series, which we have done in the past, but if you're sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing Advent into particular passages, it's always a bit of a, an interesting time to sort of see how, okay, how, how might this intersect with the coming of Jesus and how, and how do we how do we look at that? So not because we want to make it all about that, but just how, how does that play into that? And so that was, a, that was an interesting thought process this week as we look at Matthew 17. And so before we get into this, I just, I want to again sort of remind us, I mean, this, it's obvious, but, but it's really, sometimes it's important to think about this, that this was written to the context is it was written to first century believers. Matthew's writing his gospel probably about after 70 AD. So, so it's, you know, a number of decades after Jesus was on the earth. And, and there's this, this they, they had this challenge in that time as Matthew's writing this gospel, this challenge that they're facing persecution both from the Romans and from J- the Jewish religious leaders at the time. And so there's, a, there's a, a lot of persecution that those that are receiving this letter are under, this gospel. And, and what they hear here in Matthew 17, and I think this is helpful for us too, is that the disciples themselves, as they're walking this journey with Jesus, they don't understand everything at first. They're, they're, not, they're not cluing into everything that was going on. And they're trying to make sense of what's going on. In fact, it says in verse 23 here in Matthew 17 that they were filled with grief because again, Jesus is speaking to them about how he's going to be killed and all, and, and they're going, we don't get this. And they, they are filled, like it says they're filled. Think, just think about that. They're filled with grief. Because again, in, in the Jewish context, they had no understanding of a risen, glorified Jesus. They didn't think like we do 2,000 years later. They didn't have everything laid out for them. They're, they're going, this, this does not compute in our Jewish minds what's going on here. And so amidst the requirements of paying taxes, that's in Matthew 17, and their own shortcomings of faith, not being able to heal this boy that has seizures, they're grappling with Jesus, speaking to them about his impending death. And so what we see here in Matthew 17, and we'll get into this, but what we see is there's, for the disciples, there's these stresses, there's these pressures they're facing, there's their, their own shortcomings that they're dealing with and grappling with. There's this confusion of what is Jesus saying to us? Why is Jesus saying this to us? All this stuff, real life stuff for the disciples is going on. And in the midst of all of that, 
And this is, I find this truly remarkable. We have this event, this re, this, these details of what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. Which, try to wrap your mind around what's, gonna go, what's going on here. We'll, we'll read this now, but, but this is a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. Absolutely defining God is clearly choosing to reveal to at least three of the disciples clearly who Jesus is. So Jesus went up to pray. Luke tells us that in his gospel. So he, he takes Peter, James, and John, the three that were closest to him. He takes them up and they're, they're sort of going up this mountainside to pray with him. From what we understand, it's probably Mount Hermon, which is the, the tallest mountain in Israel. It was close to Caesarea Philippi where they had been. So they make this trek up the mountain. Jesus is bringing them along because we're going to have a prayer vigil together. And then this stuff all happens. Now, again, in the midst of all this, you get this sense, clearly what Matthew is trying to convey to us is the, the timeline is picking up for Jesus. He's, he's starting to reveal more about what's going to come. He's starting to speak clear, more clearly to the disciples. This is what's going to happen to me. And so, he's also, though, dealing with, again, as well as the disciples, regular life amidst all this and what's to come. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 17. Let's, let's read the first bit of this here starting at verse 1. It'll be on the screen behind me too. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Why don't we, why don't we pray? Father, we want to receive all that's in your heart for us today. Father, we want to fully embrace these words that you spoke over Jesus 
that we just read. We want to fully embrace, this is my son whom I love, who I'm well pleased with. Listen to him. Jesus, we are so, so grateful for your coming. We, how, how can we even understand the depth of our need? Jesus, would you make these words this morning come alive? Would you absolutely awaken our hearts this morning to the truth of the gospel? Would you enlighten our hearts to the hope to which we have been called? We thank you, Father. We thank you for all that you're gonna do this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you. We welcome you this morning. Amen. The one, the one thing when I read this transfiguration account, I don't know about you, but I go, this is really understated. Like, doesn't it feel like what we're reading and you're like, Matthew just seems to generally, I think he seems to generally write like this, like it's really understated, like Jesus was transfigured. What does that mean? I mean, he tries to tell us, but like, it, it's just... What I love about Matthew is there's something to the way he writes. It's, it's matter of fact. It's, it's not about promotion. It's just like, this is what happened. Here it is. So we've got this incredible event here. And Moses and Elijah are on the scene. Moses and Elijah, like the A-team, the absolute A-team is here with Jesus. Because... For the Jews, like Moses and Elijah, like this is like, these are rock stars. These, these are the guys. This is like whatever, whoever you think right now is like the rock star, this is it. Moses and Elijah. Moses, right, through him came the law. He, he was revered. Exodus 33 says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Whoa. Then, you, then you've got Elijah. Elijah's like the pro, he was seen as like the prophet of all prophets in Israel. So like the fact that he's on the scene, it's like he's the man. And, and that's why the idea of his return, right, was so prevalent amongst the Jewish people. Because both Moses and Elijah had exited the earth under puzzling circumstances, if you will. Deuteronomy 34 uh, details for us that Moses died but then it says there that he, as in the Lord, the Lord, buried him in Moab, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. So there, there, is the, there was this belief that God had taken Moses, that, that some, whatever, however that looked like, God had taken Moses. I, I just want to bake your mind for a second, because maybe we, this is a little known detail. Jude 9, right? Jude, that little one-page book back of the Bible. Jude 9 says that Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. That's like one of those huh moments. You read that and go, huh, I don't know what to do with that. One of... <laughs> So that, and then you've got Elijah. Well, Elijah's taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. I, I don't know, whatever that looks like. So in Exodus 3, 6, right, that's where God says to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes that and then he adds, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, I don't know, any, who, who remembers American Idol here? Who watched American Idol religiously? Admit it. Who was like, when, yeah, see, I know some of you were like, when American Idol came on the scene, that was must-see television. I know, some of you are like, I'm aging myself. I don't care. 2007, do you remember what happened on American Idol in 2007? It was like one of the premier events of American Idol. As soon as I say it, you remember the Elvis hologram. Remember that? When Elvis, they, they, some, they projected Elvis onto live television singing a duet with Celine Dion. It was like, there's Elvis. And it was, because again, at the, okay, at the time, 2007, that kind of technology was like, how are they doing that? It was actually something called rotoscoping. Yeah, it was the, where they, they basically traced him out of his 1968 television special, and they put him, they, they had a body double as well, and they, and they shot it with him, with this body double, and then they projected Elvis onto the screen. I don't totally get how they all did it, but it's cool. I watched it again this week because I just wanted to remind myself, and I was like, yeah, this is really cool, actually. Anyways, that's not what this is. That, that's not, we're not seeing the rotoscoping of Moses and Elijah. This is not holograms being projected on the mountainside. This is not virtual reality. Because individuals who are dead for hundreds or thousands of years like in Moses' case, they, they don't just come back to life, do they? Like, like anyone seen Augustine lately? John Wesley? Billy Graham? If you want to go back a little bit closer. Anyone, anyone seen them lately? No, they're, they're, they're dead. Like on this earth, they're, they're gone. But you've got Moses and Elijah here. You know, N.T. Wright, in, in working through the language of the New Testament, N.T. Wright, he's done some just phenomenal scholarly work. And he talks about, um, where it talks about Colossians 3 and other places in the New Testament, where it talks about how when Jesus appears, which the Greek is parousia. It's, it's not so much, he makes the point, it's not so much that Jesus is coming from a far off place. Like, I don't know how many of what you, how many of you think about this, but that, like, do we think about Jesus as being in some far off sort of galaxy within our System like I don't I don't how how do we think about where God is right but he he makes the point that this isn't so much about Jesus coming from some far off place as Jesus will just appear and that there is this other world if you will that is different from ours but intersects with ours especially it actually like it intersects with the lives of those who are who are walking with Jesus in our inner lives. When, when Jesus is coming to us and, and we are communing with Jesus, we are interacting with the risen Lord Jesus. And one day, this is the point that N.T. Wright makes, one day these two worlds that are kind of like almost on top of one another are going to be integrated completely. That we're going to just, Jesus is going to appear and all of a sudden he's going to make, he's here. And so it's, it's, and he's going to be fully visible. But it's, it's getting at this framework 
of how we understand eternity, how we understand the new heaven and the new earth and what that's going to look like and how that's going to come to be, the fact that we're going to live on this new earth. And it seems that for a moment here, God is pulling back the curtain, if you will. He's for a moment, he's pulling back the curtain for Peter, James, and John, and they're seeing Jesus as another version of who Jesus is, and they're seeing Moses, and they're seeing Elijah, who are very much alive with the Lord. Now, again, too, I, I don't know if you're like me, like, when I think about some of these events, like the transfiguration, I think of Jesus as almost like he's, he's an actor playing a part. As in, he knows everything that's going to happen. He's read the full script. He's seen everything. And he's just playing through the motions. He's just going through for the benefit of others. Right? And I think sometimes we can think about, because we have everything, and we see kind of the full picture, and we go, oh, yeah, Jesus, he kind of knows what's going on here. He's just, he's going through the script with the disciples. But that's not what the New Testament says. That's, that's not in line with biblical thinking at all. That, that's more me reading my biases into the text, right? And, and what I know, and I'm reading it into things. Now, yes, to, like, to some extent, Jesus, he, he, he knows what's to come. He, he speaks of his impending death. He knows that he's going to be killed. He knows, he has faith that he's going to be raised to life. But equally, this is a process for Jesus, it, it required obedience. It required relationship with his father. He's seeking to discern the will of the father. I only do what my father tells me to do. Right? And, to, and, and, so, and to some extent, he struggled with what he was walking through. I mean, remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Like he's, like, he's really grappling with the enormity of what he's doing and, and what God has called him to do. And it's like, I don't even know if I want to do this, father. I don't really want to do this. But your will, not mine. So... You know, again, we, we, how we approach this, because again, as this is going on, the disciples and Peter, James, and John, they, they don't get what's going on here totally. They're like, whoa! Whoa! What is going on with Jesus? So, so Peter says, let's build three shelters. Let's put up tents. Maybe let's make this moment last. Let's, no, see, part of it is that there was this thought in the Jewish culture that when the Messiah returned, that it, he was going to come back and meet with his people like he did in the wilderness in tents. So there was this whole thing about tents in the culture. And so Peter's response is really just very much in line with his expectations of, of how this is going to go. This is, this is how it's going to go, Jesus. I, you want me to start building? I'm going to build. And, and it says there that God had, like, in the middle of it, God, while he was still speaking, it's like God's like, ah, uh -uh. Peter, you, you just, you're not getting it. He's like, I've got a very different plan. And God speaks. And when he says that there, like, this is my son whom I love. And I imagine, I don't know, was it like a booming, was it just like earth-shattering. We don't know how God spoke, but the point doesn't really matter. There was no ambiguity, though. He's not leaving anything open to interpretation here. 
It's like, he, again, he's, and he's reinforcing what he had spoken over Jesus when he came up out of the water at his baptism. This is my son. This is the one. And then he adds here, listen to him. And, and all along, as he's speaking this, you see echoes of, of the Old Testament, right? This is my son whom I love. Psalm 2.7. You are my son, whom I will make the nations your inheritance, it says there. With him I am well pleased. That's Isaiah 42, 1. Listen to him. Well, that's a prophetic promise from Deuteronomy 18, 15, where it says, The Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among you, Moses says. You must listen to him. So, in response, the disciples, they fall down terrified. They, they are just, they are absolutely overwhelmed. It's, it's sort of, again, it reminds you of where Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai, and he fell down before the Lord. We have that with Elijah too in 1 Kings 18. Remember the 450 prophets of Baal to one and that whole, that whole thing and how Elijah's like, we're going to prove who's the real God and they build their altars and the the prophets of Baal slash themselves and cut themselves and cry out and nothing happens and, and Elijah's kind of baiting them like, come on guys, come on. And then after he just dumps like all this 12 buckets of water, he just drenches the altar and then the fire comes down and consumes everything. everything everything's, it's just, everything's burned up. And what do the people do in response? They fall down. That's that. How, what other response can you have when you see it? He is Lord. He's God. He's God. So the disciples, they're like, they're, they're, they're overwhelmed. This, this is the defi- divine certification, if you will. This is the stamp. This is like, this is the one. This is Jesus. that stir us? Like, are, are you stirred by this? Like, I mean really stirred by what's going on here. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What, what happens if you go into any food court right now, into any mall around us, let's say you go into a packed food court, they'll, they'll be packed this time of year, and you stand up and you're like, and you declare that. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. What if you did that right now? Would you be laughed at? Would you be mocked? Would people say things to you that are really unkind? They'd probably be like, yeah, whatever. You know, go back and just worship your sky fairy god in your churches, whatever. We don't care. Honestly, that's the kind of stuff that would probably be said. Right now. Who's with me? You want to go do that this week? Bunch of weirdos. So what do we do with this? Because God is saying here clearly 
Jesus is the sole representation of me on this earth. Listen to him. We believe, I mean, I'm saying, as the church, we believe that all of Scripture is divinely inspired. And until recently, until very recently, all those who embraced and professed Jesus would have said that this book is divinely inspired, all of it. Now we are taking it and we're chopping and cutting and we're doing all sorts of stuff to take out the parts that we don't like and the parts that don't fit and aren't culturally relevant anymore and make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. So rip this and rip this and we, because, you know, we're just going to change as culture's changing. We're just going to go along with the whims of culture. Perhaps because left alone, the implications of Scripture are enormous, enormous for our lives, like earth-shattering enormous for our lives. Because it, what God is saying here is Jesus is Lord. He has divine authority. His words are above every other authority. They're above every other opinion. They are above everything. And if the disciples weren't sure, when Jesus says to them, come, says, get up. Don't, don't, you don't need to be afraid. There's only one left standing. Moses, as great as he was, there's something greater than him here now. Elijah, he's gone too. You know, it's interesting, right? Because John was there. And I, I find it so, it's so intriguing and so incredible when he says at the beginning of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Because he was, we use this word here, transfigured, but it, but it says here that Matthew says his face shone like the sun. Kind of brings us into Revelation 1, right? Where John says there in his revelation, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So there's something about Jesus and his brilliance just radiating from him. Just, just picture, just, just this radiating, radiating light. Because in him there is, there is no darkness. I kind of wonder, like, if, if Revelation 1, when that happened to John, if he was brought back to this moment on the mountaintop again. And he was like, oh, yeah. His clothes become white as light. So the disciples, like, they're trying to make sense of all this. They're trying, like, what is happening? So, they, so they're journeying down the mountainside with Jesus, and they're like, uh, so, so what, about, what about Elijah coming? Right? Because they're trying to grapple with, these are, our ex, these are our expectations. This is what we've expected. This is what we've been taught. Elijah has to come first. And, and so they're like, because they don't, they're, they're going, we don't get this. And so then, Peter, James, and John, they're coming back down the mountain with Jesus. And along with the rest of the disciples, they come just crashing back to earth's reality. 
Did you see this in the text? Like they, 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 they've encountered this incredible experience with Jesus, and then, boom, they're back into like this stuff. Two, and there's two very different situations here that we see in Matthew 17, and both reveal realities that, that we also deal with. And so first is this thing of the disciples and their lack of faith. So they have this incredible experience with Jesus, and then they have this reality of this tough, frustrating situation. There's this boy with seizures who has demonic possession that's controlling him of some sort. The father is desperate. He's come to the disciples who were down when Jesus was up on the mountain, and and the rest of them couldn't do anything. And Jesus replies, and he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. And kind of go like, oh, Jesus, that's like kind of harsh. Like, I, I, I read that and I'm like, oh man, like, I, do I want to say those words this morning? Jesus is grappling with the enormity of what's to come, of what he's being called to do. And Jesus' issue is also around this lack of faith that the disciples have. And he's calling them to more. How, how often do we accept stuff in our lives and exhibit that same lack of faith? I, I actually don't want to answer that question. I, I don't. Because I know, I know what the answer is. How powerless are we when it comes to our faith? No, really. How powerless do you feel at times? That's not to make us discouraged. I'm not, I'm not, don't hear that. Are, are we stirred here by what Jesus says to them? Are, are we willing to admit our lack of faith? Right, because we've, we've got stuff in our lives. We've got, we've got areas where we feel ineffective. 100%, we all do. You're all like, I feel ineffective in this area. Situations where we don't have the answers, we wish we did and we don't have the answers, and we're like, I don't know what to do. Areas that our faith feels like it's all but gone, that is the reality of this life. So how do, how do we respond? How do we process this? And this, this is what, what stirs me, or, or if you will, confronts me with the account of this boy with seizures. Jesus moves powerfully here. He moves powerfully. Like they come to him and he's like, okay, boom. And then he moves powerfully on their behalf. He just steps in and he's like, I'm going to do this, guys. Then he calls them to expectant faith. So, yeah, sure, it's a rebuke. There's a rebuke here. Jesus is inviting us to face reality. But it's also an invitation to more. The, the, that idiom that Jesus says here, you can tell a mountain to move, that, that what he's talking about there is, is, that was a well-known saying in the Jewish culture. He's basically saying, look, that impossible thing that you think is absolutely impossible, that you do not believe God can do anything about, he can do something about that. 
That's exactly what that is. Do you have faith to believe that that thing that you are like, nope, that's hopeless, God cannot do that. No, do you have faith? See, where, where is our level of faith? Where, what, what, where, where, where at on, on a barometer, if you will, on, or what, where, where is our faith? I'm, I'm asking. Because over and over again in Scripture, not just here, over and over again, we're called to faith. Big faith in a big God. Right, as Alvin used to say years ago, over and over again, it's simple, faith, simple, simple saying, big faith why? Because we have a really big God. And so we're left with the question here of, do you believe? So we get then to the second situation. I know I'm skipping a couple verses here. But the second situation is this, this weird account. Not weird, but it's just interesting that Matthew puts this account in, the temple tax, into this narrative. It's only Matthew, funny enough, that tells this story. You ever wonder why? Given his past profession. But, but rabbis, so this Yeah, I have a dead battery. That's uh, two. So, do you want to just give this to me for a sec, Jess? Um, rabbis were exempted from this tax, this, this Roman tax that they were, they were put under. But Jesus wasn't an official rabbi. And so he wasn't exempted from this, but he makes no move to challenge it. When they come to Peter and they say, hey, what about, what about this tax that, you know, you guys are supposed to pay? Like, are you paying it? Jesus doesn't try to side skirt it. It's, it's interesting, right, because Peter's approached by this, uh, about this. When he comes in, he's not the one that brings it to Jesus' attention. It says that Jesus, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. So Jesus isn't there, but he's aware of what's been going on. And he speaks to Peter, and there's this intentionality on Jesus' part here in this situation that I think is meant to teach us something. Because from what we know, it's believed that when Matthew wrote his gospel, this temple tax thing was a massively contentious issue because at, in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Matthew's writing his gospel after this. And so what happened is the Romans, they didn't want to give up this temple tax they had been charging for years and years. So they just moved it to this other pagan temple in Rome. 
And so they had all the Jewish people paying taxes for this pagan temple in Rome. And as you can imagine, this was getting the backs of people up, going, so this is what's going on in Matthew's day as he's writing this gospel. It was this tax that was put on the backs of the people. It's corruption. It's political scandals. We, we know nothing about that, right? And Jesus' take... Of course the affluent and the powerful collect from those beneath them. What did you think? Jesus is like, Peter, this is the way of the world. And I wonder too, like, is Jesus alluding to his kingdom here? A very different kingdom when he says, like when, when he asks Peter, like, like, who do they collect taxes from? And Peter says, well, from others, of course. And Jesus says, well, then the children are exempt. And I wonder if he's making a little bit of a switch there where he's alluding to his kingdom, right? The kingdom of his father and who are the children of that kingdom. I think it's possible Jesus is doing that. But, but again, so this, this, this story, compare this with the beginning of the chapter Consider what's going on here. Jesus displayed in all of his glory, unbelievable glory, and now they're dealing with a tax issue. And we're talking about paying taxes? Like, like you want to talk about a stark contrast that's happening here? I think the point that, that Peter or Jesus and both Matthew are making here is, yeah, there's injustices in life. Things that are not done, that are not righteous, yes. And Jesus is like, I- I'm not going to get wrapped up in all of that. I- I- I've, got, I've got much bigger things that I'm here for. I'm not, I'm not getting wrapped up in taxes. And so <laughs> Jesus tells Peter, he says, go and catch, your, go and fish. You're going to catch a fish. You're going to open up its mouth. And in the mouth of the fish is going to be the coin that you need to pay the exact temple tax that we owe for you and me. Like, is that, do you, do you read that and go, uh, is, that, is that like, is that really possible? Like, I mean, no, like literally. Like, did that literally happen? I think so. I absolutely think that happened. I absolutely think that, and, and the point is, I think that this is, this account is meant to stir us in that this, Jesus miraculously provides. He is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. That's why he calls us to faith. And he's the God of the miraculous who provides in unbelievable ways that are all actually a little bit weird. Like I read that and I go, huh, that's another one of those things, right? Like Jesus will provide unexpectedly in really weird ways. And we could go down a litany now of stories, right? Where God has done that in the lives. And I'm sure some of us here, weird ways that God has provided for us. So I'm, I'm in this, preparing for this. And, and to be honest, like last, I don't know, for the last quite a while, I'm, I'm feeling really stressed about finances. Like honestly, I, I am... I am I'm more stressed right now about finances probably than I've ever been in my life. 
rising costs, inflation, et cetera, all that stuff, right? Like, it's, it's real. It's real, and it's weighing on me, probably like it was weighing on so many of us. Like, there's, there's a weight right now to what we're living in. And we've been hit with a bunch of unexpected costs. Like, like I'm like, okay, like the amount of unexpected vehicle stuff. And, and then now what happens last week, I, I realized that I, I was trying to kind of ignore it. And I was told that, oh, by the way, Paul, your hot water tank is pretty much at the end of its life. I'm like, awesome, wonderful, right? Praise God. No, that's not what I said. And Jesus didn't provide a free tank. That didn't happen. But, you know, through it, he unexpectedly this week, really, like, and I mean unexpectedly, really blessed me through Dennis Keating. And Dennis just said, here, here's a bunch of the parts you're going to need because I had to do some retrofitting on our plumbing. He's like, here, just, just take it. And, and, you know, and, and it was just, it was one of those things this week where I, I was like, I was so blessed. Like, it was that little moment where it was like, I just, I felt God's goodness through someone else. But, but this is our lives. Right? This, this is our lives. Stresses, pressures, shortcomings, confusion, just like the disciples. This is us. So we're, we're reading an Advent devotional this week with our kids, and I don't remember how. Some, somehow the discussion uh, turned to the wise men. <laughs> and funny enough, we're at, in our pre-service prayer time this morning, I realized that this is what they're teaching on downstairs this morning. But the, this thing about the wise men not actually being at the birth of Jesus came up at the table. And a couple of our girls were literally incensed. Well, not incensed. They, they were just like, how in the world... We've been told so many times that the wise men were at the stable. They said, we've been told this here and there. Like, what? You're telling us that the wise men were not? No, actually, he came, he, they came when he was like a toddler. And they were like, we've been lied to. And I said, Girl, okay, I said, girls, this isn't like make or break. This doesn't have to like, you know, this isn't like a crisis of faith moment. It's okay. It's, it's just for aesthetics with the manger. But you know, the, the, the birth of Jesus, one of the things that was stirring in me is the birth of Jesus is not meant to be this like point of remembrance for us, like, like, a, like a ceremony of sorts. That, that's not what this is. That's not what Advent is. But it, but it can become like that, right? Where it, where it becomes almost like folklorish in nature, this, this whole thing of what we're doing and, and all this. And, and, you know, people have emotional connections to it all because of memories and all the stuff, the, all the traditions they've done. And, and so all this is wrapped up in this time of year for, like, so many people, right? So we, and we all have traditions, right? All of you are like, there's a ton of traditions that we have. I mean, we Chinese after Christmas Eve services. Oh, my goodness, it's so good. Like, we've got <laughs> Jess's mom's egg bake that she makes when we're there with her for Christmas. Every Christmas morning, there's this special egg bake, and somehow it has to be made at like midnight the night before, otherwise it just isn't as special. And you have to do it while you're wrapping presents till 2 a.m. in the morning. And I'm like, 
We're not doing that anymore, by the way. I'm just, I'm just too old for that now. But like, and then you've got like, oh man, like we get olives stuffed with feta. We buy them like once a year for Christmas and I just gorge myself on olives stuffed with feta and I can like, I can taste them already. Like they're coming. So <laughs> we all have these traditions, if you will, to varying degrees this time of year. Right, and, and, and that's the thing. The, those traditions can begin to define this time of year, actually. That, that, that it's not anymore about Jesus. It's not about what God has done. It's not about the fact that, that we desperately need rescuing and he's come. It becomes about traditions. And it can stay there, sadly. And I, and I know, like, it's horribly cliche, but Jesus didn't stay in the manger. Right? We, we sang that this morning from a stable to a throne. And, and what makes reading like the various Advent devotionals or reading the accounts in Scripture and, and singing the various carols and all that stuff, what, what makes that so powerful? I was thinking about that this week. Isn't it when it's the stirring and the longing and the expectation alongside of all that stuff that's stirring within us. So like when I sing, like I can sing, if I've got no connection and no awareness of what Jesus is doing, come let us adore him. Or come, wow, Jesus, I'm adoring you and all your radiance. Right? When we recognize this, this need that we have of Jesus and this longing and, and when we sing lines like a weary world, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Like is, is there not in some sense, do you not feel right now this, like, this visceral sense of, of just this weariness that pervades so much of our world right now? Like collective weariness that people have, that we are experiencing, this, this collective anxiety or fear of, of what the future holds and what's to come and the sense that, that what we've come to know and, and, and expect as normal is being shaken and that it's pretty much out of our control and yet has huge implications for us. That, that, that's the kind of stuff, right, that just can spur weariness. But, but when a thrill of hope is, is understood or, or seen or embraced as this hope that's found in Jesus, like I'm not just talking, what does it mean, a thrill of hope? No, no, hope, 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 hope in Jesus. Is that not what, what can spark our hearts and bring that change that we're longing for? The stuff that we're like, the pressures and the stuff that we're facing, we're like, a thrill of hope. You know, so alongside the challenges of life, again, that Jesus is talking to the disciples about his impending death, and they're filled with grief amidst this. Amidst all this stuff with the transfiguration, we have this struggling with grief and then we have this account of Jesus in all of his glory. I, I, think, that, I, I think that's profound. 
I, 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 because that's our reality too. And I think that's the point. That, that this, this gives us perspective here. That there's real perspective here in this text. And that is like, remember where all this is going. Remember, remember why we celebrate Advent. Remember who Jesus is. Remember where all of this is heading to this glorious new heaven, this glorious new earth. Like this is not fantasy. This is where it's heading in Jesus. I, it, that's profound. It's, it's astounding. So I'm going to leave this with you to, to ask yourself as we, as we close. Where, where do I need to remember this in the midst of my life? Where, where is Jesus actually not functioning as Lord of my life? Where, where am I not listening to him? And, and where do I need to see Jesus' glory? Where, where do I need to see that glory? Where do I need to behold that glory? You can come up, Lisa.